God, we believe that you are real. We believe that you created everything, and that is why we are here. We are here to worship you because without you, we have nothing, nothing. Right? You are the creator of everything, and we have so much good from you. And so right now, we give you our minds. We give you our emotions. Spirit, we ask that you would speak directly to us and what we need to know so that way we can worship you more tonight and tomorrow. That way we can bring you more glory with our lives as this week rolls out. Amen. Awesome. So just kind of a quick side note. Chris and I and Ben or, or Boomer, whoever's teaching down here, our desire is to show you the Bible and the God of the Bible. It's not to inspire you. It's not to tell you quips and stories that you'll remember, but it's to show you a little bit more of what the Bible is saying so that way you can go home and dig into it on your own and have the Spirit tell you what you need to know. That's why in the back of the bulletin, there's always going to be the list of the verses and little prompts for you to write notes, do whatever. But please go home tonight or tomorrow and read through these and just pray and ask God what he's got for you. I'm here to give you such a small glimpse of who God is, but my goodness, if you seek him through his word and the spirit, you can gather a hundred times more than any preacher can give you. I don't care how good that preacher is. So... All that being said, let's get into the Bible. So we're in a series called Justice in the Heart of God. And I'm going to do a quick recap just so that way you guys know where we're at before we launch into uh, the passage we're going to be looking at. You know, over the last few weeks as we've been looking at this topic of biblical justice, we can define it in two different ways. The first is receiving the natural cause and effect of our choices. The bad get punished. You know, the other definition, which is kind of hard to come by, but thing, it's the, the fact that things are being brought back to their intended design. Things are being made right. Now, based on our continual selfish choices, mankind, that's you and me, we deserve to get what we want, to be fully abandoned by our Creator. Because God is just, this someday will happen. People will be fully cut off from the author of life. But because of justice's second definition and God's heart for his creation, another beautiful option has been laid onto our tables. We have the ability to be brought back to our original design. That is living in the presence of God and being guided by his wisdom and his love. In order to make this happen, God, specifically Jesus, entered into our brokenness in order that we could be restored. For this to happen, he had to pay our just consequence, being fully separated from the maker of everything, which he was. Because of this, because of what he did, now anyone who calls upon the name of the God of the Bible to be saved from their own foolishness, they are instantly made new on a spiritual level. They are made clean or pure, which allows God to directly interact with the deepest parts of who they are, their mind, their emotions, their willpower. While he does this, specifically through the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, the person is inevitably changed or transformed, made more like they were created to be. They are shown justice, being brought back to their original design. But the Spirit also plays another role in a redeemed person's life. He is there to guide and empower them to bring God's goodness to other people in their world. For those of you who have been spiritually cleansed and given direct access to the living God, this is not only for you. It has also been done so that the other people in your life can experience God's goodness through you. 
Let me give you an analogy. Are there any EMT, ambulance, medics here? Now, did you learn all of this knowledge and experience so that way you could live safer lives? Absolutely, right? So please do not call Daniel if anything goes wrong. Right? They learn this so that they can then help other people live better lives. They can protect them and save them. Are you understanding that analogy? Jesus did not die only for you. He died for every single person that you come into direct contact with throughout your entire life. We have been given the Spirit not only to guide and empower us to overcome our brokenness, this unfathomable and almost incomprehensible gift is also ours so that way we can be a part of God's plan to redeem everyone. Acts 1.8 gives us this example. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, including Midwest, United States, South Dakota, Rapid City, 2020. Now last week, Chris looked at how we are called to bring people truth, to let people know about the truth that we have discovered that has changed our lives. By examining John 4, when Jesus met a Samaritan woman, we were able to see that for a person to receive truth in a way that they'll actually grab a hold of, it needs to be fully encased with grace or undeserved favor. This passage shows Jesus stepping into a culturally taboo situation. He crosses racial, gender, and religious boundaries. He engages in a thoughtful way with a woman of a despised nationality who has been sexually promiscuous for years and years. He is willing to move into this culturally uncomfortable, even unacceptable area and treat this woman with kindness and respect because of his desire that her life will be changed, which comes from the truth that he was given her. Tonight, we're going to look at another time Jesus steps into a person's life in order for them to better understand the goodness that he wants to offer them. Specifically, John 8, the woman caught in adultery. You know, before we look at this passage, I want you to consider this fact. In all four, in all four gospel accounts, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit directly before he starts the ministry, his ministry. Directly before, right? When he's being baptized, then he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and everything that follows is the miraculous and powerful Jesus that we know. Therefore, because of this, a major reason why Jesus said the things he said and could do the things that he did was because the Spirit guided and empowered him. So it's important for us to see Jesus as an example for how we are to operate as children of the Most High as those who have his spirit. Hope that makes sense. So let's read John seven fifty three and on. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All people came to him and sat down and began, and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, 
so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go on your way, and from now on, do not sin again. So, enough said, right? Any questions? Now, this passage, with first glance, it seems somewhat simple, but the more you dig into it, there's a lot of things that we need to wrestle with, but it can also be extremely powerful. My hope tonight is that you walk out of here having a slightly better understanding of John 8, and contemplating the idea that showing mercy instead of judgment can bring about longer-lasting change in a person's heart, and therefore their life. Let's explore this passage. Let you see where I got this from. Now, a really important thing to recognize right off the bat is that Jesus is dealing with two different audiences, the scribes and the Pharisees and the woman. This is important because depending on who a person is talking to has major influence on what they say. Let me give you a real-life example. If your four-year-old daughter asks you where babies come from, you most likely would respond differently than to your 13-year-old son. Right? The people surrounding Jesus in the temple on this day were in polar opposite camps. The scribes and the Pharisees were among the social and the religious elite in Jesus' day. The woman... She was seen as a low life, practicing fully unacceptable behavior and unfit to be anywhere near anything religious. Because of this, Jesus responds in two different ways. Let's start with the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, they devoted much of their lives to studying what they called the Torah. It's what we know as the first five books of the Bible. And they focused in specifically on the law, the 611 commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, God gave Israel, the Israelites the law for two different reasons. First one, so that they knew how they were created to live. These were road lines or street signs or rumble strips that were given so that way God's people could remain on the road that they were created to be on and stay out of the ditch. The second reason that God gave the law was to show people their need for salvation. If you spend a little time reading through Exodus and Leviticus, you will quickly see that it is impossible to keep the entire law. That it shows us what it means to live perfectly, and because no one is perfect, therefore no one can keep it all. That is why the sacrifices were such an important part of the law. God gave built-in tangible ways that his people could be redeemed when they broke the law and then received just mercy. Now, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that over time, they believe that the only reason the law was given was to show people how to live. They saw it as a list of rules that anyone should be able to keep. Those who kept it were exalted in the eyes of others. They were put into a place of honor and respect. Those who could not keep it, they were judged, seen as less than, and treated with contempt. 
Now, to make sure that they were among the privileged, the scribes and the Pharisees focused heavily in on and elevated specific laws, such as fasting, the Sabbath, tithing. By heavily honing in on certain laws and teaching others how important they were, the religious elite were able to appear as if they kept the law in its entirety. But that wasn't the case. The reality was that these men struggled with what every person struggles with, selfishness. And and selfishness manifests itself in endless ways, being greedy, being sexually provocative, even if you're the only one that sees it, seeking power, drinking too much, judging others, getting angry and filled with hatred, choosing to be lazy instead of helping another, being deceitful, And I could go on and on. Each of these things can be hard to see in another person, but they all fall out of line of the way that we are all designed to live. But for the Pharisees, they were far less concerned about the inner man and his behavior and far more concerned about appearing to be righteous. Now, in Matthew 23, Jesus goes on this rant, this the time in which he just lays out all of the problems with the scribes and Pharisees. Two verses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may be clean. We all fall into this camp. We all have certain standards that we live by and judge others with. It could be simply based on appearance, always being shaved, trimmed, well-dressed. When other people don't do the same, quick thoughts of judgment pop into your mind. Or maybe how orderly a person keeps their house, their yard, or their car. How quickly they mow the yard when it needs to be, or how long it takes them to take down their Christmas tree after Christmas, or how many McDonald's wrappers are in the back of their minivan, right? Or how someone drives. This is a bad one for me. (laughs) Too fast, too slow. I was walking downtown the other day with my two kids. They were on bikes. Uh, And each time you come to a crosswalk, we would wait, and then we would go. Multiple times as we were crossing the crosswalk, people started their turn. And so I'm looking at them as my kids are there, wondering, what is wrong with you? And my mind begins to see them as so much worse than that one act would show. But maybe for you, it's a little less superficial. Maybe you judge people based on how successful that person is, what type of job they have. Maybe your standard is on how often a person regularly comes to church, serves down at the mission, or votes. And and maybe your standard is even less trivial and about what truly matters, how a person treats their kids and spouse in public, or how their kids behave, whether a person is honest and trustworthy. The deeper motivations behind a person's job, is it just a hard work ethic, or are they greedy and seeking power? Based on all of our different standards of approval, we are constantly deciding whether a person is good or not so good, whether they are worthwhile or a disgrace, whether they are worth our time, our energy, our resources, even our friendship. As we peer through our own lenses of what is right, it is so easy to see those who fall short. But the thing about viewing through a self-centered lens 
self-created lens is it's very easy to hide all of the ways that we fall short of God's standards. Let's go back to John 8. See what these religious people are up to. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that way they might have some charges to bring against him. Now the religious elite were right. There are laws given by God that command people caught in adultery to be put to death. Let's look at one of them, Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now this woman was just pulled out of bed with either a man that wasn't her husband or a man that was married to another woman or both. She was literally caught red-handed. It seems like this should be a pretty black and white case. But something very important to help us gain a deeper understanding of this situation is the scribes and the Pharisees' motivation. According to verse 6, they brought this woman before Jesus trying to get him to stumble, to make a mistake in accordance with the law so that way they could change people's minds about how good Jesus was. The Pharisees didn't care at all about this woman or about obeying God's law. Did you notice that the man was not with her? But according to Leviticus 20, that both the man and the woman should be killed. This alone is direct proof that the religious leader's deeper motivation had nothing to do with honoring God's instruction on how people should live. Rather, they were fully entrenched in their own selfishness, looking to do whatever was best for them whatever they could do to get Jesus to shut up. Now, if you read the chapters prior to John 8, large crowds of people are gathering to listen and learn from Jesus. And he's doing things that the religious leaders saw as ungodly, like healing a man on Sabbath. Jesus is also making bold claims that he is from God himself, and he has come to give people waters of life, living waters. In major ways, Jesus is pushing back against the authority of the religious leaders. Now, instead of taking time to listen and examine what he's saying, the Pharisees instead desire to remove him from the equation so that way they can continue to do what they think is right. And so they drag this woman in front of him. But they have no desire to elevate God's authority over her sin to make the Creator's standards instead of whatever we think to be better. And that's the whole point of the law, to elevate God and His view on things over us and our view. Instead, the Pharisees simply wanted to do what was best for them. And because of our inner Pharisee, we are motivated by the same desires. When we see people doing things that we know are not good for them, things that fall outside the realm of living healthy lives, so often our judgmental thoughts are motivated by our self-centered view of ourselves and life. We judge people that smoke or drink too much or have gotten divorced or who don't go to church or believe in the God of the Bible or who have kids that are rowdy in public or watch trashy TV or gossip or whatever. 
We judge these people because we personally do not struggle with those problems. We mentally and sometimes verbally lash out at their faulty behaviors, not because we desire for them to see that God's design will bring them what they want. Rather, we judge them so that way we feel better about ourselves. Instead of elevating our creator's plan for humanity, so that way this person can have a life full of joy and peace and purpose and contentment, we judge them so that way we can throw them in the dirt so that way we look a little cleaner than we did before. Because Jesus understands the deeper motivations of the Pharisees, and he desires for them to know their own brokenness so that way they can receive more of God's goodness, it's so important to remember Jesus loves the Pharisees too. He's got two audiences. He's got the same desire for both, to bring them life. Because of that, he directly confronts their judgmental nature. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Man, don't you wish you could know what he wrote in the dirt? A note in my Bible says, according to ancient, some ancient authorities, he wrote the sins of each of them. You know, who knows if that's accurate, but based on what he said, it makes sense. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In order to point out their selfish and judgmental nature, Jesus reminds them of the ways in which they have personally broke the law. You think that this woman is scum and you are holy, but remember when you consciously chose to not make eye contact with the person on the side of the road that needed help? Remember when you slept in and didn't make it to the early sacrifices and then you lied about your kid and your wife being sick? Remember when you made money more of a priority than God? Remember when you got so angry that you backhanded your wife? As each of the men remember their own sin, they seem to possibly recognize their own unhealthy and ungodly motivation. Remember, this is the second purpose of the law, to make our own sin unescapable. Out of this understanding, these men seem to know their inability to openly condemn the adulteress. So they all slowly and quietly slip away. Now I wonder how this technique would affect you and me. Next time your emotions and your mind begin to create condemning thoughts towards other people, point out to your inner Pharisee your own brokenness. The times where you have been selfish and have made poor choices that fall outside of God's design for you. Make your selfishness obvious to what the Bible calls your flesh. Tell your pride that you are not nearly as perfect as you think you are. I wonder if this will do for us the same thing that I did for the scribes and Pharisees. Cause us to back away from our Pharisaic platform and show that person grace. Undeserved favor. But beautifully, Jesus did not stop with simply causing these men to experience self-condemnation. So neither will we. 
Let's look back at how this finishes off. The last three verses of John 8. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. Now, an important thing to know, which my seven-year-old son pointed out to me this week, is that Jesus could have thrown the first stone. I hadn't thought of it. He lived his entire life in full alignment with God's standard so he could have been the one to justly punish this woman. But instead, he declares to her that he does not condemn her. In doing a little bit of word studying in the Greek, condemn always seems to mean past judgment or a verdict, as if a judge is the one legally doing it. Instead of carrying out the first definition of justice, a person received the natural cause and effect of their choices, Jesus shows her mercy. He tells her that she has been pardoned and is free to go. Now, he does not excuse her sin. He ends by telling her to clean up her act. But he sets her free from the guilt of her foolishness. And imagine what this whole experience would have felt like if you were this woman to be dragged out of the middle of a despicable act and shamefully put on display in front of dozens of other people, to hear their condemning words and see their judgmental looks, to be fully belittled and treated with such contempt, and then to have a man of authority stand up for you, to fight off the vultures as they are circling, And then for him to look you directly in the eyes and speak words of mercy to you. Imagine what this would do to your heart, the innermost part of who you are, your mind, your emotions, your desire of what to do once you leave that place. By being shown this level of love at one of the lowest times in her life, I think it's safe to say that she was changed forever. Now, two points of application as I wrap this up. If you have cried out to the God of the Bible to save you, then you have experienced this exact same thing. You have been set free from condemnation because you have been fully forgiven. It doesn't matter how despicable or rotten or socially ugly your sins have been or will be, they are gone, dealt with, and you have been given a new life one of hope, one of rebirth. When you feel condemnation from other people or from yourselves, tell yourself that the choice does not define you. Adamantly tell yourself that the creator of everything has shown you complete and total mercy. If you don't listen, do it again. If you don't listen, read Hebrews 10. If you still don't listen, come and talk to me. This is something that is so crucial for you and how you live your life. Understanding that your sins have been forgiven once and for all. Hebrews 10, 14. Second point of application that we can get from this woman. Because we, because you and me, have been treated with such mercy and kindness, we should desire to do the same thing for the people that are in our world. By examining the way in which Jesus treated both the scribes and Pharisees 
and this woman. For me, I see that Jesus' deeper motivation is to do his Father's will. And his Father's will is about bringing about the second form of justice, to restore people back to their original design. With both the religious leaders and the scandalous woman, Jesus' end goal was for them to recognize their desperate need to fully depend on the one who gave them life. The one that has the life that they want in his hands. Because we have the same spirit guiding and empowering us, this should be our deeper motivation too for the people that we come in contact with. The ones that we so naturally judge. So next time you are face-to-face with someone that causes those judgmental thoughts to roll through your mind, take half a second to ask yourself what your deeper motivation is for this person. Life or death? Then ask God to give you the ability to show them mercy instead of condemnation. Pray with me, please. Just bring your mind before the one who made you, the one who saves you, the one that can sustain you. God, make this a reality for us right now. Bring somebody's face or name to our mind, some group of people that we are continually just judging, condemning. God, convict us about our behaviors and then empower us to love them. Empower us to show them mercy to show them what you have shown us time and time and time again. God, give us the ability to depend more on you and your spirit. Less on ourselves and the brokenness that we bring, but on the power of the living God that can do anything and everything. God, we are your people. Use us to bring your goodness into other people's lives. Amen.